Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. Before we get started, this episode mentions sexual violence. Please take care. First award honors the NBA Rookie of the Year, Michael Jordan. Tear down this wall. The Hubble telescope will give us the most dramatic new view of the heavens since Galileo. Hi there, my name is Oprah Winfrey, spelled O-P-R-A-H. A lot changed in Chicago between 1982 and the 1990s. James Lewis and Roger Arnold had to watch all of it from behind bars. Both were serving time in prison between the early 1980s and the mid-1990s. Roger Arnold for fatally shooting an innocent man he thought was someone else. And of course, James Lewis for writing the extortion letter. For years, both men were suspects in the Tylenol murders. But neither served any prison time for that. Because the case was still unsolved. Law enforcement continued to work on it. So far, we've looked closely at both Arnold and Lewis through the lens of law enforcement and shared what we learned from our interviews and our documents. During our reporting, we also interviewed close friends of both men. We learned about their lives as each re-entered society after prison. And we got our hands on sealed court documents. You're going to hear exclusive information that hasn't been made public until now. This is an inside look at how each suspect felt, thought, and behaved after prison. It's two very different stories about two very different men. Yet even after all those years, Lewis and Arnold still had at least one thing in common. It was only a matter of time before each was tangled up in the Tylenol investigation again. But this time, one of them was dead. And one of them was still alive. I'm Christy Katowski. And I'm Stacy St. Clair. This is Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. Episode 7, Friendship. In the mid-1990s, Arnold was about 12 years into his prison sentence when he petitioned the governor of Illinois for an early release. In his clemency petition, Arnold accounted for all of the time he had spent so far, describing how even though he entered the system a 7th grade dropout, he earned a bachelor's degree while in prison. He also wrote this, There is a victim in this account, and it is not the petitioner. The victim is John Stanishaw and his family. At the moment of the crime, 
The petitioner still had a choice. He could have walked away. The petitioner is sorry, but being sorry doesn't really cut it. The self-recrimination and guilt that the petitioner will know the rest of his life is something that he will have to live with for all of his days. Arnold didn't get clemency, but a few years later, he was released. He served about half of his 30-year sentence. It was late 1998 when he got out. He went back to the southwest side of Chicago, and he tried to restart his life over again. First things first, Arnold needed a job. He got one bagging groceries at a grocery co-op, but he didn't seem to like it much. A friend we talked to suggested it was a little too granola for him. So he went through the Help Wanted section of a newspaper, and he answered an ad. Roger was the second uh, person I interviewed. Steve Shulman, owner of A1 Truck and Auto Supply on the southwest side of Chicago. And one of the questions I had asked Roger was, why do you need the job? And he said, I needed the money. So I hired Roger. Shulman found out about Arnold's murder conviction after hiring him, but it didn't change his mind. He was a great employee, very punctual. Arnold lived a quiet life. He saw very few people, aside from his landlord, a girlfriend, and his co-workers at A1 Truck and Auto. We don't have too many employees that have ever worked for A1 Truck and Auto Supply. Most have become members. That's how I look at it. You're a member. Shulman and another employee took care of Arnold. They would share meals and check in on him. Eventually, they even gave him a cat to keep him company. Her name was Harley, like the motorcycle. In a sense, were you guys kind of his family? We turned out to be his family, yes. Arnold worked at A1 for about seven or eight years. But Arnold's past haunted him. In 2008, it got worse. He was seeing the person that he shot, his face, in front of him. John Stanishaw, the innocent man he murdered 25 years before. Arnold was having nightmares. He just kept on seeing the person in front of him, and he said, Steve, I can't concentrate, I can't sleep anymore, so I'm going to have to leave your employment, find somebody else, I'll stay with you till you find somebody else. We talked to Arnold's old landlord, a friend, who was a medical doctor with psychiatric training. She told us that around this time, Arnold wasn't able to get his prescription filled for antidepressants, and hallucinations are a common side effect of withdrawal. Whatever the cause, Shulman remembers that Arnold was haunted. I don't know. The fact that he was haunted doesn't make me feel better. He was like a tormented person. Lori Edling, the youngest daughter of John Stanishaw. She was just a teenager when her dad was murdered on that dirty Chicago sidewalk. She told us she felt safer when Arnold was in prison. You take someone else's life, it's a lot to carry on your soul, right? On your heart, in your mind. Um, I do, again, I still wonder if there wasn't more, like if he didn't carry more with him. For some time, 
Lori thought maybe Arnold was also guilty of the Tylenol murders. Arnold eventually did quit his job. A few months later, Shulman got a weird feeling. I called. He didn't answer the phone. I, I sort of knew something was wrong, but I waited another day, called again. He didn't answer, which was very strange. And There was a key to Arnold's apartment. I went over there, and he was lying on the floor in the bathroom. Uh, he had hit his head against something. And uh, we buried Roger probably about two weeks later, I think. Because Arnold was a veteran, Shulman arranged for him to be buried in a military cemetery. But Arnold didn't rest in peace for very long. Hey. Hey, so I'm forwarding you an email right now. We heard back from the National Cemetery Administration for the exhumation. Oh my God, hold on. But it has the reason why they considered Roger a suspect. Although, you'll, you'll see it. I mean, it's worded so that like... One day in 2010, about two years after he died, authorities exhumed Roger Arnold's body. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. Officials are starting to look for answers after doomsday in Waco. Champion figure skater Nancy Kerrigan held back to tears. Welcome back to our coverage of the great Chicago flood. While James Lewis was doing time, his wife Leanne moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Lewis got out of prison in 1995, and he moved to Cambridge too. And that's where he crossed paths with Roger Nicholson. I was Jim's neighbor and um, became some kind of a friend in some weird way. Kind of frenemy, I guess, is the word I want to use. The way I met him uh, the first time was I was coming out of my corner store and Jim opened the door for me and I recognized him as the person who was released from prison and moved into my neighborhood as the prime suspect in the Tylenol murders. Nicholson says he forgot about his infamous neighbor until a few years later. I had gone on a real deep dive of John Douglas's books of FBI profiling and about serial killers and mass murderers and all that, and was like, I wonder what this guy's doing. Nicholson hosted a public access show on Cambridge Community Television 
called the Cambridge Rag. He would literally rag on people. Nicholson thinks of himself as a provocateur. He tried to book Lewis for an interview, but no dice. In 2005, when we tried to reach him, we couldn't because he was in jail, because he was on a charge, a rape and kidnapping charge for his neighbor who lived in the building. When Lewis got out of prison, he stayed busy, as James Lewis always did. He worked from home and launched a company offering web services, like hosting and design. He called it Cyber Lewis, and he still has a website by that name. The design is very early internet. You know the kind I mean. Around October 2003, Lewis went into business with his neighbor, a younger woman. The next summer, in 2004, they got into a disagreement. The details of what happened next are graphic, according to prosecutors. All you really need to know is this. Lewis was arrested and was indicted on charges alleging the following. Aggravated rape, kidnapping, assault and battery, indecent assault, drugging for sexual intercourse, and drugging to confine. He spent three years in jail awaiting trial. In the end, Lewis's former business partner decided not to testify against him. Prosecutors dropped the charges. By 2007, Lewis was a free man again, back on the streets of Cambridge. I check in with him every now and then. I'm like, hey, how you doing? He's like, I'm sleeping by the Charles River. And he's homeless, basically. I offered him my apartment. You can stay on my couch, dude. It's right before Christmas. You don't have to sleep outside. I got you. What was your understanding of why he was homeless? What had happened? Well, uh, I can only surmise, but, uh, you know. Lewis had been in jail. And maybe that kind of makes marital tension. Lewis moved in with Nicholson for a while. They were an unlikely pairing. Lewis, a tall man with graying hair, and Roger, many years his junior, in the role of jester. I would play a lot of online poker, and I'd sit on my computer, and Jim would be sitting next to me. And if I, like, won a hand, I made him fist bump me, because it was bad luck if he didn't. It was stuff like that. And we'd sit around talking about whatever. He has a million stories about a million things. The two ate McDonald's, watched MSNBC, and verbally sparred. Roger would tease him about the Tylenol murders to try and get a reaction. His explanation to me about his alibi is, I have an alibi. I would wave in front of security cameras whenever I saw one. And to me, that's like, why would you wave in front of a security camera so people know where I am? I'm like, why do people need to know where you are? Why does anyone need to know where you are? You're in New York. And why do people need to know you're in New York? But he's got an explanation for it. Because he's very quick at coming up with a, a reason why something he said doesn't make sense. So he's slippery that way. Have you ever been afraid? Of him? Yes. No. He just looks like an old man. You know, he's just like an elderly gentleman walking down the street. Well, I ran into you at Albert's Corner Store in East Cambridge. And finally, he got Lewis to appear on Cambridge Rag. 
And and I, I thought you were nice. You opened the door. I was like, oh, thank you. I was like, oh, what a nice guy. And then the I two at sat me. at a table in front of a black curtain and a cardboard logo for the channel. And uh, and I kind of like forgot about you for a while. Good. I wish everyone else had forgotten about me. And that is the voice of James Lewis, the James Lewis, saying that he wishes to be forgotten while appearing on television. Nicholson jumped right into the familiar routine, trying to provoke Lewis about the Tylenol murders. I don't know if you're the guy or not. And I, I cannot yeah. <laughs> be the guy if I was in New York when it was happening in Chicago. It's impossible. Well, I already have an explanation for that. But that's okay. That's fine. The interview continued like that for most of its 30-minute runtime. Later in the interview, Roger tried again. This time, Lewis stumbled for a second. We left, New York, we left Chicago for New York on the Broadway Limited almost a month before any of this happened. Okay, and you have no... Do, what, do you know when documented when that was? Do you the FBI's week? got that, and they know the Broadway Limited, they know the... You just take the bus, and, I remember that. Okay. That, I still, that doesn't... The train. That still doesn't train. mean you couldn't do it. Amtrak. The interview goes on. They cover the extortion letter, Lewis's mail fraud charges, and his childhood. We understand what you get out of the relationship, but I guess the question is, what do you think he gets out of the relationship with you? Is he a lonely man who has no friends? Is it the attention-seeking? Maybe the, maybe our adversarial interactions are, like, interesting to him, you know? They're interesting to me. Lewis did have a history of adversarial relationships, like his cat-and-mouse dynamic with FBI Special Agent Roy Lane Jr. And it was just a matter of time before Lewis and Lane were talking again. In 2006, nearly 25 years after the Tylenol murders, the mostly dormant case became active again. Okay, now, we got to be careful here because I can't really talk too much about Task Force 2. Roy Lane Jr. He retired from the FBI in 1996, but 10 years later, he was back on the Tylenol case. Do you feel comfortable just kind of laying out some of that's already out there in the public? Maybe a year before uh, the formation of Task Force 2, a former reporter had a theory on uh, who was responsible for the Tylenol poisoning. And he wanted to meet with the special agent charge uh, of the FBI, Rob Grant. The FBI didn't think he had the right guy. But Tylenol was the perfect cold case. So we started talking about the case, though. And Rob said, this would make a perfect cold case. And Lane agreed. Maybe six months later or so, a person walks into the Arlington Heights Police Department. The Chicago suburb where the Janices died and says, I think I know who did the Tylenol poisoning. She goes, I think it was my husband. The detective was intrigued. He ended up discarding the tip. But there was new DNA technology available, and the 25th anniversary was coming up. The timing was perfect. It all came together, and that's how the task force uh, was started. Task Force 2, a reboot with one original cast member, Roy Lane. Their main suspect, once again, was James Lewis. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. Around the time that Lewis got out of jail and went on the Cambridge rag, the FBI reached out to Lewis. Lane couldn't tell us a whole lot about it, but multiple sources gave us some details. According to Lewis's website, Roy Lane told Lewis he knew a journalist who was investigating the Tylenol murders, and she wanted to write a book. Would Lewis offer his insights? Maybe it would help clear his name. The writer was actually an FBI agent named Sherry Nichols. That was her undercover name, not her real name. And her book wasn't real either. It was a ruse to get Lewis talking. They hoped at some point Lewis would accidentally incriminate himself in the poisonings. Lewis bought it, and the operation kicked off. Lewis later wrote on his website, sounded like a great idea. I had endured nearly 30 years of being publicly vilified in the press worldwide as the prime Tylenol mass murder suspect. Lewis and Nichols worked on the book together for a year and a half, where Lane was part of it too. They communicated more than 60 times through meetings, phone calls, and emails. During this time, Lane offered to help Lewis with another book, a novel, a pet project Lewis started writing in jail. Lewis titled this second book, Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma. It's a work of fiction and starts with a mass murder in Chicago. I think he has a fascination with poisoning or poisons. The book is about a brilliant man from rural Missouri and evil corporations that destroy the earth. It focuses on a Midwestern town. Many of the things in the book are things he took like from his childhood. On Lewis's website, he said that Nichols gave him money to buy a new laptop and that Lane and Nichols went with Lewis and his wife Leanne all over the country to help with his research for the two books. Lewis said they went to New York and to Chicago. Andy said they went to nice restaurants and expensive hotels. Not a bad setup for a guy who spent the past few years in jail. He told his friend Roger Nicholson about it. I mean, Jim was very impressed. Flying me and Leanne out to uh, Chicago was, you know, was like he was being wined and dined and treated like a dignitary. Lewis said they also paid for him to go to Missouri for research. While they were out and about, other agents from the task force secretly trailed them. And then look, come to find out that dude was running a number on Jim. 
The FBI says there are new leads tonight in a 27-year-old cold case, the fatal poisoning case from 1982 in which Tylenol capsules were laced with cyanide. The FBI used the undercover operation to help get a warrant. But today, agents raided the home of a 62-year-old man in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who had a... In February 2009, investigators raided Lewis's condo and storage lockers. They carried out bankers' boxes full of potential evidence, like Lewis's personal papers and at least one computer. One of the things they found was a handwritten document titled, Yes, I am a killer, but I got 10 good reasons. Among those good reasons listed were personal vengeance, to wipe out scum, and to teach a lesson. They also found a list that was a few pages long. It had events and locations of Lewis's whereabouts in the weeks leading up to the Tylenol murders. That list included things like checking into a hotel, taking the Amtrak, even buying a frying pan. The document has a gap between September 25th and September 28, 1982. The exact window investigators estimate the tainted Tylenol bottles were put on the shelves. It has them in New York at midnight on Wednesday, September 29th, the day the victim swallowed the poison pills. In fairness to Lewis, it's unclear who wrote the documents. Neither document mentions Tylenol or Johnson & Johnson or anything related to the 1982 poisonings. Lewis says he wasn't in Chicago at the time of the murders. He said as much in his interview with Roger Nicholson, and he has a whole page dedicated to it on Cyber Lewis. And authorities have acknowledged they cannot prove Lewis was in Chicago at the time of the murders. They didn't have that critical link. After the raid, Lewis realized he'd been played. The Tylenol book was a ploy. That was the end of his association with Roy Lane Jr. He took to the Internet to clap back. Lewis's website, Cyber Lewis, goes deep on the Tylenol murders. On it, he makes a case for clearing his name as a suspect. There are pages like the perfect alibi, and did Johnson & Johnson bribe Illinois Tylenol Task Force officials in 1982? When it comes to his own novel, Lewis wrote that the FBI raided his home to find earlier drafts of Poison, A Doctor's Dilemma. He wrote, Agents Roy and Sherry tried to lead and prod me into making the fictional protagonist in my novel confess to killing 12 people in Chicago. He also said that Lane and Nichols had coached him on the writing and sent him graphic emails to inspire him and paid him thousands of dollars. We asked both Lane and Lewis about this. They agree about a few things. The writing operation for the Tylenol book wasn't a real effort to write a real book about the real killings. And the FBI did take Lewis out for meals. But Lane and Lewis disagree about something significant. Lewis said on his website that Lane was trying to get Lewis to confess through Lewis's own novel. Lane disagreed. I didn't write the book with him to get him to confess. Lewis told us what he wrote on his website was, quote, very carefully, 
100% accurate. Lane disagreed. What about that website? Is he is he making that story up? I'd say about 50%. There was, um, I can't, I just can't get into it. I, sorry. I wish I, 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 I'll tell you, I wish I could, but I just can't. Whether or not it was an effort to have him incriminate himself, Lewis self-published the novel Poison in January 2010. You can buy it on Amazon, print or Kindle. It has a blue and white cover with a hand that looks like it's giving the middle finger and a photo of a man who kind of looks like James Lewis. Lewis cut ties with the FBI, but he didn't keep his head down. I'm Roger, and this is uh, Jim Lewis. Jim, you're back on my show again. Yes. Delighted to have you, as uh, as odd as that may sound. This is going to be a tough interview, Jim, because uh, we're here to promote your book. But yes. we got to, like... That's our only purpose here. I know, but... That's right. With all of this FBI activity, James Lewis went back on television with his friend Roger Nicholson. It had been about three years since his last appearance in 2007. During this interview, Nicholson had a trick up his sleeve. Roger opened up the phones. You're on the Cambridge rag, hello? Uh, Mr. Lewis, it's uh, Russ Potosik in Kansas City. Do you remember me? Russ Potosik, you, I don't remember you. Russ Potosik was an investigative reporter at the time. He was trying to break some news. But I've been trying to reach you for months about this case. What about the reports are now that you have now given DNA to authorities in the Tylenol investigation? That is a legal question. Talk with my attorneys. Task Force 2 used new DNA technology to re-examine the tainted Tylenol bottles from 1982. According to the sealed court records we reviewed, investigators found various unidentified DNA upon testing three bottles and the capsules within. Back during the original Tylenol investigation, many different people handled the pills without gloves. So now, the FBI wanted to compare DNA to rule out the investigators, scientists, and medical personnel who would have touched the evidence and see if they could finally match the DNA on the bottles and capsules to the DNA of their suspect. He said, well, if the FBI is... Playing fair, they're not going to find anything. That's what he said. Lewis turned over a DNA sample and his fingerprints. Lewis was not a match. If he was, he would have been charged right then and there. The task force kept going with their investigation. If they wanted to shore up their case against Lewis, they'd have to rule out as many suspects as possible, like Roger Arnold. The police had stopped here to get uh, DNA evidence on Roger. In November 2009, the Chicago police paid a visit to Steve Shulman, the owner of A1 Truck and Auto. Shulman had kept some of Roger's personal items. The authorities took Arnold's brown wallet and some neckties. They also took one of Shulman's keepsakes of Roger, a black and white hat that said Chicago on it. It's unclear if they found any usable DNA samples on those personal items. They never returned the hat. But their investigation didn't stop there. In June 2010, 
prosecutors requested permission to go down to Lincoln Cemetery and dig up Arnold's body. The exhumation request was sealed, and it still is. But Stacy and I got our hands on it. The cemetery sent it to us in response to a public records request. Records show they took his femur bone to extract a sample of DNA. They put him back in the ground that same day. Sources told us they kept the femur bone. This has never been reported. As part of their investigation, did you know they exhumed Roger's body about a decade ago? Really not surprised. They're the ones with the badge, and they can do what they want. According to the records and sources we spoke to, the DNA on the bottles or capsules did not match Roger Arnold. We want to be really careful here, though. The Tylenol bottles and the fingerprints are just two pieces of evidence in a big investigation. The lack of DNA doesn't automatically rule out anyone. Because authorities have always believed the killer wore gloves while handling such a deadly chemical. And Arnold would always loom over the case. If the FBI wanted to show prosecutors that they had a strong enough case against Lewis, they had to make a convincing argument that it wasn't Arnold. In 2012, investigators met with prosecutors from DuPage and Cook counties in the downtown Chicago FBI building with views overlooking Lake Michigan. During that meeting, the investigators gave a PowerPoint presentation with their strongest evidence against James Lewis, outlining why the case should move forward. They told prosecutors it was a chargeable circumstantial case. But years went by, and nothing substantial happened. When we started diving into the Tylenol murders nearly a decade later, we thought it was a cold case. Hey. Hey, I got your text. What's up? So I just hung up with a source uh, well-placed with Task Force 2, and I think this lead is heating up. In January 2022, we got a tip. There was movement on the Tylenol murders. It wasn't a cold case. But this is very clear that this is not uh, just some fingerprint evidence. Investigators were pushing prosecutors for charges against James Lewis again. And Lewis has never been eliminated. I still think to this day he's the person of interest. Investigators thought they had something compelling. It's what kept them pushing this case 40 years after the crime. When we heard that there was a PowerPoint, we realized there must have been a recording of Lewis. We had to hear it for ourselves. So we got to work. For more details about our reporting of the undercover FBI operation and a transcript of this episode, visit chicagotribune.com forward slash Tylenol murders. Unsealed, the Tylenol murders is executive produced by Will Malnati from Atwell Media and Mitch Pugh from the Chicago Tribune in association with AudioChuck. Produced by 
Claire Ty, Jessica Glazer, and Anne Margaret Warner. Edited by Morgan Springer. Production support from Molly Getman, Zach Rapone, Matt Hickey, Andrew Holzberger, Seth Richardson, and Mark Van Hare. Fact-checking assistance from Wudan Yan. Mixed by Daniel Turek. Original music by Hannes Brown. Reported by us, Stacey St. Clair and Christy Gatowski. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work.